This is episode number 365 with Chief Data Scientist at Untapped, John Crone. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you back here on the show. Today, we've got a very special guest, John Crone. So what you need to know about John is that he's a speaker, he's an educator in the space of deep learning. He is an author, a best-selling author, I should say, with his book, Deep Learning Illustrated, and he is the chief data scientist at Untapped. John has impacted numerous data scientists with his deep learning lectures, tutorials, workshops and explanations, and in this podcast, it'll be no different. Today, we will cover off topics such as coronavirus and data science, models for human resources, natural language processing, transformers, BERT, and even GPT-2, uh, the role of a chief data scientist, the trade-off between accuracy and compute complexity, and also explainability, uh, checking for bias, helping people learn, making your AI narrow, and transfer learning versus one-shot learning. And those are just some of the topics we're covering off in today's podcast. So all in all, it's going to be a very packed episode with lots of knowledge bombs. Get ready to be blown away. Without further ado, I bring to you Chief Data Scientist at Untapped, John Crone. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you on the show. And today's special guest is John Crone calling in from New York. John, how are you going? Hey, I'm doing very well, Kirill. It's awesome, man. I love asking this question at the start because like, we've already been chatting for like 50 minutes or so. And still, how are you going? Let's get things yeah. going. Um, yeah, man. So... Um, Lots of cool things, lots of cool things happening. Um, at the same time, of course, we've got the whole situation still of coronavirus. Um, how's New York faring? Is it is it slowly past the peak or is the worst yet to come? Yeah, so in terms of what I see on the streets, things are exactly the same as they have been for several weeks. So, you know, we're on, as of right now, filming end of April, we're on a complete lockdown. Uh, you know, when you go on the subway, there's nobody there walking in the streets. There's nobody there. Mm. Uh, very easy to keep the social distancing in public. Mm -hmm. And, but from what I read, uh, things are definitely improving. Uh, you know, the projections of how many hospital beds would be needed. ICU units would be needed. Ventilators, all that stuff. None of it ended up happening. The, uh, the severe lockdown has worked and yes, uh, Tragically, lots of people uh, have been affected, you know, lots of lost work hours and discomfort and unfortunately lots of uh, lives lost as well. But uh, it has not nearly been as bad as, as was feared. And um, and yeah, the infection rates as well as hospitalization rates are now coming down. And um, the governors of New York and surrounding area are starting to figure out how we can uh, start opening things back up with lots of testing and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good to hear. Well, hopefully... It all settles down sometime soon, and people can start moving around like 
is also being indoors is is I think taking a toll on many people as well. You know, like you want to be outdoors sometimes at least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You'd know you come from Canada, right? Like Toronto, probably great great places to go outdoors there, no? Yeah, although it's a funny thing, you know, growing up in Canada, I think people have a really uh, an idea of people spending lots of time outdoors and there is a lot of great outdoors, but I grew up in downtown Toronto hmm. and I have no, I've never camped in Canada in my life. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I've I lived a very urban life. Uh we lived uh one block away from a subway station from when I was a young kid getting going to the subway station on my own and taking a train into school. Uh so the opposite of the kind of uh a rural Canada experience that people think of. Gotcha, man. Oh, that's crazy. I don't know even if you can call yourself Canadian now. <laughs> no, exactly. And Toronto is the most American city in Canada. A lot of the rest of Canada doesn't even really like people from Toronto. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it'll be nice. That is the one thing that you can do in New York. I know some places they have um, severe lockdowns where you can't even go outside. Wow. But in New York, uh, it's actually uh, encouraged, you know, going on bike rides, going on runs. Um, so that's all I've been able to keep that up. And actually from that perspective, it's kind of nice because you don't have to worry about traffic in the streets. So oh, you don't have to stop at red lights or anything. So there's some, some very small benefits. Mm, gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's good to hear. What brings you to New York in the first place? Yeah, great question. So I did my PhD in Oxford in the United Kingdom. And I specialized there in developing uh, machine learning algorithms distributed over many computers for analyzing the large data sets of brain imaging and um, what we call genomic data. So uh, genetic data where you have genetic information from the, the, the DNA of the entire uh, organism. And so these are very large data sets. And so you need to apply uh, machine learning to be able to identify patterns in the data you can't possibly do it uh manually wow wow very cool because i'm looking at linkedin your um uh, phd says neuroscience uh so you were doing neuroscience and you're doing machine learning in neuroscience that's like the best combination you can get yeah it was exactly so i had colleagues there were um there were uh 20 people uh in my year that started with me and and studied uh, neuroscience that we did a master's year and then we most of us stuck around for a phd afterward and people were you could do anything in neuroscience mm. um you could uh you know do studies on lab animals or uh in the lab you know grow bacterial cultural cultures and to me it was so obvious that uh really focusing on using computers as my specialization in neuroscience made a huge amount of sense because I, I knew even then, and it's still true today, that uh, data, the amount of data on the planet doubles every 18 months. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge opportunity to be automating things, to be understanding the world by using computers to comb through these ever, ever larger data sets and identify patterns. So I was fascinated by that even then. And I thought, well, I might want to stay uh, in medical sciences. And if I do, well, this skill set will be useful. Or if I decide to leave um, medical sciences, this skill set will be very valuable there as well. And, and that is what I ended up doing. That's how I ended up in New York. 
I ended up working at a hedge fund as a quantitative trader for a couple of years between New York and Singapore. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like the pendulum swinging too far the other way. So <laughs> <laughs> on, on the same, one hand, same, same skill set, other side of the pendulum. Yeah, exactly. Where in academia, you know, you, you can spend your day however you want. You can publish on everything you do very and be very open about what you're doing. Um, but the pay in academia is uh, not always, well, it's, you know, on average relative to industry, it's uh, much lower pay. Mm-hmm. And then the, the hedge fund world is the opposite way where everything is closed. You, you can't, you obviously can't be sharing your strategies mm-hmm. uh, widely at all. And I really like being able to speak openly about what I'm doing. Um, and also it was very narrow problem solving. You know, you're basically, you're trying to predict whether an asset is going to go up or down over some time period in the future. And I, a lot of people find this problem fascinating. Uh, you know, I have lots of friends and my sister, even they work as, as traders and it's it, for a lot of people that seems like a great fit for me. Um, yeah, I, so I've been able to find this thing in the middle of, of commercial data science of building models that can be widely used in a lot of cases you can publish on a lot of what you're doing and you can automate repetitive tasks and make people's lives better. So this is a, I think this is a nice middle ground for me uh, these last few years, but I stayed in New York. Um, you know, this, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful city, especially if you like uh, biking around and if you like socializing. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. Great, great story. And, um, so, and that's how you found data science for yourself through uh, neuroscience, quantitative trading, and like what led you to identify that data science is the next thing? Yeah, it was actually, it was kind of a funny story. I, I, I didn't know that this term existed until <laughs> after I left trading. And my initial idea, because the whole time I was doing my, P, most of the time I was doing my PhD in neuroscience, I thought I wanted to go back to Canada study medicine and uh, do medical research. And so that's what I was thinking near the, near the end of my time trading. I was like, yep, I'm going back to Canada. I'm going to go to med school. Um, but I had a few weeks left of uh, rent on my mm. apartment mm. after I'd left trading. And so my initial plan was to finally get to see the sites of New York, which I was always too busy to see. Mm. And uh, I still haven't seen the sites of New York <laughs> <laughs> because... I discovered through a friend, she said, oh, you know, my company um, is a company uh, uh, called ZocDoc. So they're big in the U.S. They allow you to find um, a a doctor or any kind of medical specialist uh, online. Um, Mm -hmm. And she said, I work at this this company, ZocDoc, and uh, we have this role open called data scientists. Mm. And it seems like you have a very similar background to what we're looking for. And I looked it up and I was, it was exactly right. I was like, Oh wow. Yeah, this is, I have exactly this background already. And so that opened my eyes. And then I ended up spending uh, all the rest of my time uh, in New, in New York, those weeks. And then now several more years uh, in that field. It's, it's just, it's the perfect fit. Uh, I, I love the data science world so much as I'm sure you do. Yeah. It's, it's such a wonderful community. You meet people, either online or in person from all over the world, working on so many different kinds of problems, publishing their code in GitHub, sharing it there. 
writing papers that are published immediately on archive. The speed with which things move is so exciting. And in the time I've been a data scientist, there have been so many huge breakthroughs across machine vision, natural language processing, uh, deep reinforcement learning. And I think this is only the beginning, really. I think that uh, the best is yet ahead. I actually, I talk about this a bit in my book, which we'll talk about later on. And, you know, I, I, I think that there is a really, the future is going to be uh, really interesting. In, in the coming decades, uh, data is going to facilitate enormous changes in society, uh, you, you know, orders of magnitude more than it already has. And it's the data scientists that are going to be playing the, the, the key role. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We're already even seeing that with this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Like at the start, everybody kind of scrambled and tried to, you know, like, um, of course, do everything that we can to uh, save lives and uh, not let this virus spread. But now we're in slowly as the situation is stabilizing, it's data scientists who are looking into the data sets, who are modeling what was happening or modeling, you know, how the outbreak happened, what's going to happen in the future. Uh, for instance, Sam Hinton, who's been on the podcast before, I uh, was just speaking to him uh, yesterday or the day before, I think yesterday. And he he's uh, one of the uh, lead data scientists in Australia handling this whole situation. So like, it's the people that we know that we surround ourselves with, that we learn from, that we network with. These are the people that are now going to be looking into uh, these data sets and how we can prevent the next pandemics from happening. And this is just one example that this is going to be happening across the board, that data, data is everywhere. Totally. And that epidemiology piece is one part of it. So people are kind of aware more than usual about the, the work that epidemiologists do and kind of forecasting on, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, how many hospital beds are we going to need, ICU mm. and all that stuff. And that's one piece where data science plays a role. Although for the most part, those those models are, are relatively simple. Um, we wouldn't typically call those AI models or, or we wouldn't use deep learning to tackle those problems. Um, however, there are other parts of the um, of, of understanding coronaviruses or viruses in general uh, that do involve these kinds of techniques where, you know, we model an understanding of um, the shape of proteins that you would expect from the DNA or RNA of a virus and then how those protein shapes interact with each other. Um, and so there are a lot of really sophisticated modeling techniques that can be used to understand a virus and potentially help us uh, develop uh, drug candidates or maybe even identify drugs that already exist and that are approved as safe for humans that will bind well with uh, some aspect of the, the virus's uh, shape and that we can use to speed along um, the, the uh, you know, treating, treating society from, from this disease. It, it is really fascinating from all these perspectives whether it's sharing of information or coming up with solutions. Uh, if you think about the tragedy that unfolded over the world a century ago with the Spanish flu mm -hmm. and how, you know, there are more people killed by Spanish flu in the years after World War I than there were killed in the trenches of World War I. Mm. And today, we're, we've been able to learn, you know, we, we know so much more about the world than a century ago. It's crazy. And our ability to communicate. So, for example, uh, during this ahead of the Spanish flu pandemic, a big, some big American cities decided to cancel their parades and others kept parades. 
And it's those cities that kept the parades, you know, that had that were impacted disproportionately worse uh, by the Spanish flu. And so it's this kind of thing. This 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 is exactly what I'm talking about. You were right on uh, hitting the nail right on the head here with this idea of how humans uh, in general and data scientists in particular have become so efficient at sharing information, um, uh, you know, even in an automated way uh, over the world that, that we can adapt as an entire species globally change our patterns of behavior, everyone, so that we can fight this virus uh, and protect as many of our species as we can. It's a really uh, fascinating thing to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Hope you're enjoying this amazing episode. I've got a cool announcement for you and we'll get straight back to it. Virtual Data Science Conference. Here is, well, you've probably heard of Data Science Go, the conference that we've been running for the past three years in Southern California. And maybe you've attended, if so, it was super cool to have you there, but maybe you weren't able to attend for the reason of being in a completely different country or the flights were too long or the timing wasn't perfect. There could be plenty of reasons why you weren't able to attend. But now we're bringing Data Sands Go to you. So this June, we're hosting Data Sands Go virtually and you can attend and get an amazing experience there. And guess what? The best part is that it's absolutely free. Just head on over to datasensego.com and get your tickets today. This will be our very first time running a virtual event, but nevertheless, we're still going to combine the three key pillars of fun, amazing talks and networking into this event. You'll hear from speakers like John Crone, Sam Hinton, Adlan de Ponteves, Stephen Welch and many others. Plus, you'll be able to network with your peers. This event is going to be epic on all fronts and we'd love to see you there. Head on over to datasensego.com slash virtual and get your ticket today. The number of seats is limited. We'd love to have everybody there, but for our very first event, we're limiting the number of seats to make it more manageable. So make sure to get your tickets today if you want to be part of this. And on that note, I look forward to seeing you there. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. Let's talk a bit about what you currently do. So you're the chief data scientist at Untapped. Uh, what does Untapped do, and what what is your role there? Yeah, so Untapped is a machine learning company. We design models specifically for use in the human resources sector. So the most common problem that we tackle is um, I have you have a, a big data set of candidates. So if you're a big corporation. Uh, some clients of ours, they get millions of job applications a year to thousands of different roles, and they are inundated with, with applications. Um, and so they have to hire large teams of people to use historically a keyword search to mine over those millions of candidates that they have. And uh, clients of ours, uh, blue chip companies, have done studies using our algorithm compared against their previous approaches that their internal recruiters use to um, to identify candidates in their database. And uh, I can't disclose the name of the company, but uh, a big global microchip company, uh, they found that our algorithm was able to identify 21 times more of the very best applicants for a given role Wow! relative to their keyword search. Because keyword search, if you think about it, so if you have lots of, uh, if you have a sophisticated Boolean search where you have lots of ands and ors, you're going to be looking for a very specific kind of person that used a very specific kind of language on their resume. Hmm. 
Uh, with an approach like ours that takes advantage of deep learning, and for some audience people, some audience members will know what word vectors are, we can basically have this kind of fuzzy representation of language and the meaning of language. And these fuzzy representations allow us to easily find um, people who approximate the language of a job description or approximate the language of what a given internal recruiter is searching for. And so in this way, we're able to identify a much larger uh, pool of, of possible candidates. And on top of that, the other thing that's really great that you get out of this is that the candidates can be ranked in a very uh, specific way. So um, we can assign a probability that any given candidate will be invited to interview at any given role, and then we can sort based on that probability. Whereas if you do a keyword-based search, you just get a yes, pool no. of positive hits, yes, no, exactly. And then so you still, you get your positives back and you have to go look at every single one hmm. um, instead of starting at the top of the list. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so these kinds of approaches, uh, we, over the years, through working with many clients and uh, previously we used to run a, a recruitment website ourselves, which we no longer do. We licensed hmm. out that part of our business, but through that process, we built up a data set of hundreds of millions of decisions of a given candidate being invited to interview at a given role. And so we have this rich data set that we've been able to use to create these probabilities. And it allows our clients both to, it saves them a ton of time and it allows very highly qualified applicants to now be right, to now be noticed. I mean, that, that 21 times figure is, is crazy mm-hmm. to think that, you know, 5% of the relevant people were, were getting a phone call from this company and 95% were being ignored. Wow, that's crazy. Tell us a bit about the techniques, like what kind of techniques do you use? Uh, especially NLP is so exciting these days with uh, BERT, which is like what, a year old now, just over a year old uh, from right. Google. Like what kind of techniques uh, do you use? Of course, to the extent that you can disclose. Yeah, I can I can absolutely talk about these things at a, at a high level. So um, we've experimented with transformer technologies like BERT. Mm-hmm. Um, at this time, we don't think that the the advantages in performance that you get with something like a transformer are worth um, the the computational time or the you know yeah it's uh, the computational expensiveness of running these kinds of techniques. Um, Sorry, so, I just want to jump in. Do you mind explaining what a transformer is? <laughs> Sinan Ozdemir explained to me on yeah. the podcast a few months ago. I I need a refresher. Yeah, of course. So uh, BERT is uh, the most well-known of these uh, transformer approaches. What they allow us to do is they allow a natural language model to be able to um, scan over lengthy stretches of text and identify uh, the most relevant words to some outcome that you're trying to predict. So it's... um, it's a it's the most sophisticated way that we have today of uh, being able to um, to represent the most important parts of a document, especially over long stretches of the document. And there's if you want to see a transformer in action, there's a really fun uh, click and point user interface called Talk to Transformer. I think it's mm-hmm. TalkToTransformer.com. But you can Google Talk to Transformer, and this uses um, a, a what what some people think is the most powerful kind of transformer today. It's called GPT-2. 
it, that was created by the people at OpenAI, um, a charity funded by Elon Musk and some other people. And this GPT-2 algorithm, um, you can use it to uh, generate text for you. So you can start typing something. And, and this can be a very short sentence. So you could say, um, a recipe for French onion soup is, and then you can have GPT-2, this at talktotransformer.com, complete um, complete your thought for you. And it's really amazing. You can have it create some really fun things. You could say, <laughs> um, Joe Biden will beat Donald Trump in the next election because... Mm-hmm. And then it it will come up with reasons, uh, <laughs> and every single time it comes up with something new. So that's uh, this is amazing. I'm on there right now. So this is what I typed in. I typed in I'm on a podcast with John Cron, and this is what it what it generated. I'm on a podcast with John Cron and Chris Sims. Uh, sorry, John Cron and Chris Sims. Uh, this is the podcast I listen to when I'm taking a cold shower. I do find <laughs> <laughs> some interesting information in it. One article I like is. And so on. Wow, it's so good. It's like very like legible. It kind of even makes sense. Yeah, it's funny. It it does it does a really good job, and uh, it's never it's not perfect. We still have a long way to go to make yeah. um, an algorithm that can converse with you in a way that is really compelling. But you can see if you if you play with Talk to Transformer a few times, you can get this sense of how it's able to keep it's able to remember. Um, say that you typed my name, John Crone, yeah. um, and it will remember that over paragraphs even, and it can continue to talk about me in a way that makes some sense. Um, uh, sometimes it isn't perfect, but it's it's the best approach we have today. So anyway, so so Bert, as you mentioned earlier, that's another transformer. Um, uh, it was it was earlier than GPT two and uh, a bit more widely known, uh, but these kinds of transformer technologies. Uh, they're very computationally expensive. So, um, uh, yeah, they, there's a trade-off uh, where, where you're getting these really great results. And there are various people, there are lots of research groups who are working on uh, making these transformer technologies less computationally expensive. So a very famous, uh, a, a very famous transformer that's doing this is called Distillbert. So it distills down the most important parts of BERT. But even then, they're, st- they're still very computationally intensive, expensive. So, for our purposes, for what we're doing, uh, you know, so to give the example again of that candidate to job matching, we do other kinds of human resources models. But you know, that is a very common one, and so I'll, I'll return to it again here. Um, when we're doing a search over the natural language of a client's database that has millions of profiles in it, it's much more important to us to be able to give them results in a sub-second timeframe than to be able to get slightly higher accuracy. And the kind of, if we were to switch from the kinds of approaches that we're using today, um, which involves uh, deep neural networks still, um, but it involves um, kinds of, uh, you know, combinations of uh, neural network layers that are, are pretty well known. Mm-hmm. Um, so convolutional layers, long short-term memory units, um, and uh, also, you know, using natural language pre-processing approaches, um, like creating word vector spaces that enable us um, to have this kind of fuzziness of, of meaning around language, like I mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, by using these kinds of approaches, we're able to uh, 
uh, were able to surface very, very quickly um, results that I think qualitatively they would be the same as using these much more computationally expensive transformers. So this is an interesting thing you actually asked and I haven't really answered. You, you, uh, you said, what's my role as chief data scientist? And this is a big part of being the chief data scientist is uh, taking these kinds of considerations of um, accuracy versus computational complexity. What is the user's experience going to be like with a model, like the model that we're building? Um, in academia, when you see machine vision competitions, natural language processing competitions, or Kaggle competitions, the purpose is almost always to build the most accurate algorithm. And so you come up with these complex ensembles of various different approaches, gradient-boosted trees, deep learning models. But in practice, when you're building a product for clients, it's often actually much more important to be efficient so that they're not waiting around for results. You can do things real time. And um, you know, getting that efficiency and engineering things in a way um, that you get sub-second results um, can often be more important. And so it's that kind of thing that um, that being a chief data scientist uh, is, it's uh, at least in my case. So your, your role is kind of like reining in the, the super ambitious and driven and passionate data scientists who are like, all right, let's do BERT or let's do GP2, GPT-2 and, and so on. And then you're like, hey, what does the client actually need? Where's our accuracy versus our computational complexity and you know managing all those things to get get a good result, but at the same time, meet the expectations of the client. Yeah, very, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. And one more thing that uh, I would add to that equation, and I'd be curious to see how how you guys go about it, is, uh, so you mentioned accuracy, computational complexity, but there's also a new um, concept, well, relatively new concept that's becoming more and more important, which is explainability, right? So you can have a very accurate model, but and maybe even computationally uh uh, affordable, but it might not be explainable enough, and some companies will refuse to use it because they're afraid of maybe bias or um, uh, racism that is inherent in the model, and they just don't know how to explain it to their end user at the end of the day. How how do you guys go about explainability? Yeah, that is in this case, it's hugely important. Um, so we have taken an approach where so there are some companies out there. Uh, some competitors of ours that build uh, models that are solving a similar kind of problem to ours, mm -hmm. they use very simple models where you can explain much more. So they will do things primarily around like keyword counting. Mm -hmm. So they can say, look, these are the keywords that were used in your job description. Mm -hmm. And look at how many of those correspond <laughs> keywords in this and that's literally our competitors the biggest names i, I won't mention them by name but the, but the biggest names in our field that build these same kinds of models that's exactly what they do it mm. they have big lists of keywords and so if they see the word python yeah um and java then they will say okay these are uh, software developer words and they'll kind of base and so they have just they maintain these lists and so they search over job descriptions and they search over candidates for matching keywords and, and they're nested. So you can say, you know, this group of words, um, because there are a bunch of words, Java, Python, C++, this person is a software developer. And so they can show that very specifically. So you can basically game, game these algorithms, right? And, 
And people who are like more elaborate using synonyms and stuff like that, or a bit more modest, they're just going to pass, be passed by. Absolutely. That's absolutely it. And so, the, so you see this. So we, we see this all the time. Tons of people, in order to get past these kinds of automated systems, um, you've probably seen this. People put laundry lists of skills hmm. inside each of their work experiences. So, you know, they'll do kind of in every work experience, they'll have a few bullet points that is designed for a human to read. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, they'll put something like skills used colon and then just put like 20 skills. Mm. And that's because these kinds of algorithms that are prominent in uh, the human resources industry, they do exactly that. They do keyword counting. And exactly like you said, people can game the system in that way. So our system is completely different where it's using word vectors to represent the language. And so things like you said, synonyms can be accounted for people being creative with language. That's absolutely fine. And in fact, because our algorithm is trained not on how many keywords match, but on human decisions, mm -hmm. these hundreds of millions of decisions of what candidate is, is the right fit for the right role, our algorithm actually has learned to penalize people who do that laundry list of skills because human recruiters don't like to see that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> the flip side, as you mentioned, there is, is un unfortunately, with this kind of approach that we've taken, explainability is limited. Um, mm -hmm. I don't like the word black box because you can go in and you can learn what all of the weights in your model do, but it, the, the, the interactions are so complex that it's, you know, it can't be done in, e in an easy way. So the approach that we've taken is to say, um, well, since it's not going to be straightforward to explain what's happening in our model, we need to be absolutely sure that it is unbiased. And so um, we, for example, have created a data set that consists of um, hundreds of cases of, uh, of women and men that mm -hmm. are perfectly suited to the same job. Mm -hmm. And um, our algorithm comes out, it's exactly the same score to the decimal point for those people. And it's related to our modeling approach as well as the way that we pre-process our data. Um, so some of these things are obvious, like removing personally identifiable in information, pronouns, all this kind of stuff. Um, so there are things that you can do, those kinds of recommendations I just gave, anybody can implement, but we've kind of packaged it all together into a suite of um, pre-processing and modeling tricks that eliminate bias. And we've actually applied for a patent. Oh, wow. That. Yeah. That's really cool. I was about to say, could you tell us some more, but uh, since you don't have a patent <laughs> yet. Gotcha. Okay. That's really cool. So I, I like that idea. I think a lot of people can uh, learn from that, especially data scientists or chief data scientists at companies that they are out there um, techniques and uh, um, by the way, do you know Ben Taylor? Yeah, Ben Taylor was the last guest on my podcast. Oh, nice. Okay, well, Ben Taylor <laughs> definitely knows you because he posted a question for you and uh, uh, we were just talking to Ben Taylor maybe a, a year ago or so about um, uh, specific techniques to remove bias. Like you can um, normalize somehow even even if you don't, if for instance, in his case, like when he's working with um, photos and videos of humans, you can't really desensitize it completely. You know, like sometimes it's just impossible to completely make everything absolutely anonymous. And so um, there's techniques on how to um, adjust your 
model or deep learning, deep neural network on, uh, so it, it eliminates the bias. But even, like, I love your approach because it's very fact factual at, and, like, uh, and end of the, it's applied at the end. Like, okay, you have a model, great. Uh, and now, why don't you have a test data set that will you can run through your own model and if it doesn't have bias, then the results shouldn't matter if it's a male, a female, if it's uh, you know a person of any gender or any race, any background, they should be able to get absolutely the same results. So I think that's a very simple, but at the same time, very powerful technique that a lot of people overlook. And that can help a whole organization avoid later on uh, you know, bad publicity or even a lawsuit because they didn't check that their model uh, doesn't have the bias. Exactly. You couldn't have said it better, Kirill. I was actually expecting those kinds of techniques that you're describing. Mm -hmm. What I was expecting to happen was that we would do this test and we would find that there was some bias. And mm -hmm. then and then I was like, and so I'd been reading liter the literature on these kinds of techniques for adjusting uh, models. Um, but then once we got these results, I was like, oh, well, I guess we don't need to do that, um, which, <laughs> which I think is a good outcome because um, you never... You, I, 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 when you apply those kinds of techniques, you are you're adjusting your model, your cost function in a way that you might have unanticipated side effects that mm -hmm. you're not able to control. Or um, and so this is I, this was a, an ideal, a, a fortunate situation, um, which I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's funny that so what? So Ben Taylor, uh, he wrote something on LinkedIn, and I haven't seen it yet. Is that what oh yeah, did? oh so you haven't you probably haven't seen. So I posted a, a LinkedIn. Uh, announcement uh, 24 hours ago that you're coming on the show and I asked for people to submit questions and we got quite a few questions come in and one of them was from Ben Taylor. Oh, oh that's funny. Yeah, I'll check that out right after the show. I was so busy preparing yeah. to be on the program, Kirill. I, uh, <laughs> so focused. Well, I, uh, yeah, I actually, okay. well, so, yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk about focus and that kind of stuff later on. But Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. And we'll get to these questions in a bit as well. Uh, ben yeah. Taylor posted some nice ones for you. Um, let, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and let's talk about like your contributions to the world of data science. So in addition to being the chief data scientist at uh, Untapped, you're actually doing a lot and it's it's uh, very impressive how you find the time. I guess your productivity techniques work very well. Um, you've published a book, congratulations, first book, um, a bestseller on Amazon in two categories and translated into six different languages, outstanding. Uh, you've you. uh, recorded a lot of uh, hours or dozens or maybe uh, more, yeah, probably dozens of hours of video content on deep learning. Uh, yep. Your videos are available on YouTube, on uh, different other uh, outlets such as O'Reilly and so on. Like you're really adding a lot of value to the lives of data scientists. What, what, let's start with like the question, what motivated you to start creating educational content in the space of deep learning? Oh, complete selfishness, Kirill. <laughs> uh, it, it, I'm not even kidding. I, I, I got started with, um, teaching these techniques because I wanted to understand them better myself. I wanted to, uh, anytime that you're going to have to teach something, you have to really dig deep into, okay, what assumptions am I making here? And where is my argument weak and where, what are people going to ask questions about? And so, um, I've, in large part, I, I set off down this road because I wanted to understand initially uh, deep learning was the thing that I um, I wasn't familiar with. So we talked earlier about my background, my PhD, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I finished my PhD in 2012, and neural networks only started uh, becoming popular after the AlexNet uh, victory in 2012 in the uh, ImageNet large-scale visual recognition competition. And so it was kind of that was the turning point for deep learning. And so, you know, so year, so a couple of years had gone by, and I'd had deep learning on my radar, and I hadn't been learning it. And so I thought, you know what, I've got to, I've got to force myself to learn it. And so um, I, I created something in New York, which we have been running out of untapped offices for years. Uh, there's a deep learning study group. Um, and so I stood up at a meetup and I said, if anyone's interested in learning about deep learning, uh, I was thinking of putting a group together. We can email around, figure out what we want to study, and then go over it together. And so that was the starting point. Um, but then I, I, I love doing it. I love teaching. I didn't, um, I, I've always enjoyed teaching and lecturing. And it's been a terrific opportunity. It was in 2016 that I created that group. And a lot of meetups in New York at that time, they they hadn't had any speakers on deep learning, but their audience was very interested in that topic. And so I could come to a meetup without anybody knowing who I was. The topic alone drove huge audiences where they had overflow rooms with a screen and a video feed. Wow. And they had people lining the walls. And, and this happened at several meetups over several months that I was speaking on where they say, you know, you're our first deep learning speaker. Um, and I don't know. So then, yeah. And at one of those events, there was a, an acquisitions editor from Pearson, uh, the publishing company. And uh, yeah. And so, she, so with her started making videos, wrote deep learning illustrated and, uh, and now, and now I'm hooked. I absolutely love it. I still do. I pick topics to teach on that. Um, you know, there's a mix, some stuff, is stuff that I already know really well and I think is important for data scientists to know. Other stuff is stuff that I don't know and that I really want to learn. And so mm -hmm. it allows me the opportunity to shore up what I perceive as a weakness. And the ideal is when it, and a lot of that content, it ends up being both. It ends up being uh, something that I need to know and don't know yet. And also it's great for my audience to know. And so, uh, yeah, so it's been this, it's been this journey but I'm really glad to be here. Fantastic. Wow, that's really cool. And uh, for our listeners, I wanted to make a quick uh, surprise announcement. Uh, we just spoke with John uh, before the podcast, and John uh, agreed to join us as a speaker at our very first virtual event, Data Science Go. This is going to be happening sometime in end of June, so look out on for announcements at datasciencego.com. John's going to be presenting something special on deep learning and natural language processing. Uh, how are you feeling about that, John? Yeah, I'm, well, first of all, I'm honored. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the Super Data Science Podcast, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording the show. You're, you know, the, this podcast, as well as, you know, the associated videos, the brand that Super Data Science has, I've been aware of you guys for so long. And so I was honored to be asked to be on the show. And then now I'm further honored to have the opportunity to speak at your first online conference, it's, that's exciting. Um, yeah, I'm feeling good about it. I'm looking forward to uh, virtually meeting a bunch of new people. Uh, as we talked about also earlier on the show, speaking at conferences is one of the most rewarding experiences that I, that I have in my life today. It's so wonderful meeting people from all over the world and um, 
yeah, and, and being able to, to help people understand things. Um, I have a style of teaching, which, uh, which people seem to really like, which to me was intuitive. Um, a lot of illustrations, a lot of color. Um, I put a lot of personality into my talks and I make sure that I, I have as few assumptions as I can and lots of hands-on demos. Uh, and I don't know. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's great that it's been able to resonate. I love getting that kind of feedback. And every time I get to talk and meet people, it's this uh, feedback cycle that constantly allows me to understand the material better, develop better materials, understand what people want to see. And I don't know, it's just, it's really good fun. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, speaking of uh, illustrations, let's talk about your book. It's uh, like, I, I just ordered my copy today, so I haven't read it yet, but really looking forward to it. It sounds like a Thanks. lot of fun. So it's like, um, as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like you're describing, explaining deep learning. There is code so people can follow along. And there's yep. also a GitHub repository. <laughs> Finally, I scroll down to the bottom and you got this super cool image of a myopic trilobite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I loved it. Uh, but basically, so as I understand, your uh, book uh, has descriptions of deep learning uh, models and how they work, but in a very visual way. Tell us a bit more about that. Like, uh, how how is this teaching style which you mentioned? What is it all about? Like using visuals to describe how a deep learning model works. How how do you do that? Yeah. So a lot of things that happen in in mathematics and in machine learning can be represented visually. Hmm. Uh, as and I do have equations in the book. You you can't escape that. <laughs> but I try to wherever possible complement equations with visuals. So uh, drawings of matrices or uh, drawings of the way, uh, an intuition of the way that something is happening. So one of my favorite uh, analogies um, that I've ever uh, come up with and that is, is used a fair bit in Deep Learning Illustrated is uh, to explain stochastic gradient descent. Mm. So that trilobite that you saw there's trilobites throughout my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. Um, uh, the, the illustrator, Agley Bassens, she did a wonderful job kind of creating this trilobite as a mascot. And then we use that mascot in lots of different ways. So, um, you know, when we're explaining what deep reinforcement learning is and how you have an algorithm play against itself, we could have um, two trilobites sitting on the opposite side of a Go board playing Go, uh, the board game against each other. Mm -hmm. um, and she did some brilliant illustrations around illustrating stochastic gradient descent, where um, we have this analogy of a blind trilobite um, trying to find his way home. Uh, and he knows that he lives at the bottom of a valley <laughs> and all he can do, he's standing on a hillside and all he can do is kind of use his cane to investigate in the directions around him. The gradient. The gradient exactly the slope around him and wherever it's lowest he, he he takes a step in that direction and gradually following that approach he makes his way home to the bottom of the valley i love it love it uh adds adds uh definitely gonna remember that one better than the balls rolling down the the valley and finding the bottom very cool um interesting approach so for anybody interested it's uh, the book is called uh deep learning illustrated and it's a uh, a book with a white cover with a very weird <laughs> drawing at the bottom. That's the trilobite we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Okay, so so that's really cool. And um, and then you got another project you're working on, which is coming out very soon, end of uh, May, I believe. Uh, Machine Learning Foundations. Tell us a bit about that. So why why are you diving into the foundations of machine learning? Yeah, so I've been able to. I've had the honor over the past few years through developing this deep learning curriculum that was turned into the book. It was, as you mentioned, dozens of hours of videos. I, I teach that curriculum in person at conferences, in O'Reilly at live trainings. I guest lecture at Columbia University, New York University, and I teach my curriculum at the New York City Data Science Academy. So I've been doing this deep learning curriculum. I've done it to dozens of different audiences um, over the years. And the key thing that I realized is people are, by and large, using abstractions of the algorithms that they're deploying. So whether you're using scikit-learn or TensorFlow or PyTorch, you might have a minimal understanding of what's going on under the hood in your algorithm. And so in order to kind of um, to help people understand the foundations of machine learning, so linear algebra, partial derivative calculus, algorithms, data structures, um, uh, probability distributions, so uh, I'm I'm covering all of these topics, so that once so that when you're thinking about your machine learning algorithms, you can understand better what's happening, how they work, where the dangers might lurk, and where the opportunities might be uh, for you to improve your approach. Wow! Wow! That's that's really cool. That's a uh... Uh, it's a big challenge you're taking on. That's, uh, you know, <laughs> all those topics you mentioned, that's going to require quite a bit of explaining. How, how are you feeling about it? You, you're ready for the task? Uh, honestly, Kirill, I, I, well, I said to you earlier that I'm, that I'm never nervous, but I am actually really nervous about this. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just because of how much, you know, you kind of, it's, it's like, it's like writing a book and, and, and you know what this is like. It's, yeah. It's extremely, it's extremely time consuming to make sure that you're doing it properly. Mm-hmm. And the kind of the stress that I know I'm going to be causing to myself and to my personal life by deciding to do this, um, you know, I, you know, I'm nervous about that, but mm-hmm. I know that, that the reward, that it's going to work out one way or another. Uh, eventually you always, you know, you know, you, you set the deadline and eventually you, you make it happen somehow. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited about this. It's uh, so we start uh, May 28th. Um, I'll be offering the first linear algebra class in O'Reilly Safari. It's a three and a half hour uh, live training, and then a week later we do linear algebra two. A week after that, there's three and a half hour calculus class, and then another calculus class, uh, calculus two. The week after that, so gradually. So I'm setting these deadlines of kind of uh, once every couple of weeks from end of May through beginning of September with these hard deadlines of doing these online teachings. But in parallel, I will also be uh, taking those online teachings and converting them into uh, video tutorials. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be some mix, uh, but a large portion, maybe even the majority, possibly even 100% of them, I haven't figured this out, I will be putting for free in YouTube so that anybody can enjoy these materials. And... Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, there's other uh, possible uh, avenues for uh, this content as well, uh, which uh, even you and I have been talking about. Mm-hmm. But we'll figure those things out. But uh, one way or another, it's going to be these uh, live online trainings, videos, 
most some some combination of which will be free, maybe all of them, and eventually that will also be a book. Fantastic, thank you, and that's very very noble and admirable that uh, you're putting out a lot of this content for free on YouTube. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be excited about that. So, uh, everybody, look out for those coming end of May. All right, I wanted to use uh, the remainder of our time to chat about some of the questions uh, the audience uh, posted on LinkedIn. Are you you ready for some rapid fire questions? Absolutely. Okay, here we go. So Vasco asks, uh, why is R your go-to tool for data exploration? And if you're fresh out of college today, which language would you focus on? That is interesting. I wonder where Vasco got that from. So is, is it I, Python? Uh, yeah, today it is. But it's. I would say it's likely that I said that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely something that used to be true. Um, that makes it so much more interesting. <laughs> Why did it change? <laughs> um, so for a long time, R was my bread and butter. Mm -hmm. Uh and so that just kind of made it easier for me. Um, and actually, even today, I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't use R very much. I spend most of my time, when I'm doing exploration today, I'm most of the time in Jupyter Notebooks mm -hmm. uh, in Python. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand you could be using R in Jupyter Notebooks, but I seldom do. And I, I could still see that there's a place for R. So, for example, the ggplot2 library, um, is a wonderful library and there is nothing that comes close in Python. So mm. probably the best developed plotting library in Python is Seaborn. Mm -hmm. And Seaborn uh, has got nothing on ggplot. So maybe actually I've convinced myself back that I should be spending more time. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, I think that it's a great idea to learn more and more technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have more things in, in your belt to to experiment with and so i might see um something that i want to investigate and it would be quicker to do it in r um though most of the time today it is python and and that's largely because uh you know python is <laughs> this is going to sound really derogatory to the r community which i was in for a long time mm -hmm. and it was my primary but R isn't a real programming language for putting in it. It's not for a production system. You, you know? did not just say that. <laughs> oh, you, gosh. You know, you can't. It's a, it's a statistical programming language. It's not a, um, it's, it's not for production deployments. Okay. Okay. I, um, I, I completely understand where you're coming from with this. Uh, I, I have to say, though, that I had uh, I was speaking to Hadley Wickham on, on the show about a few oh, months ago. Oh, jeez. Well, I mean, he's <laughs> obviously going to disagree. Yeah, yeah. He's, like, they're working very heavily on making it a production, uh, like a production-oriented uh, language that uh, yeah. people can use. But, yeah, everybody has their own opinion. I think I agree with you. The more you know, the better. I, I would say that um, the pro the the kind of the the trap that people can fall into is that like you learn one, you learn the second one, you learn the third one, and then you you kind of develop because by nature we're we're generally humans are lazy and you know laziness is is the driver of progress. Um, we we tend to like focus. You 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 find some one project you work on in a certain language, let's say Python, and and then you stick to it and you kind of don't focus on R as much. And all I can say on this topic is I would I would probably. Um, set up like 
for myself at least like one week per month or something like that where I can only use R, whether I like it or not. And and to just motivate myself to stay on top of things because with time you obviously forget uh, these programming languages. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it's it's not even just going back and forcing yourself to use an old language. Um, it's also challenging yourself to learn new things. So mm. uh, I've never used Julia. but Yeah, I, I heard Julia is great. Yeah, same. And, you know, you hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it's the kind of, there's an endless, I mean, this is a good problem to have. Yeah. Uh, You know, that's one of the wonderful things about the field of data science is you can never be bored. There is never any reason that you should not have a full day as a data scientist because there is an infinite amount of uh, new libraries, new approaches new theory that you could be learning and uh, deploying for your problems. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, uh, I think we covered that one. Uh, question number two, uh, this one's from Adrian. Actually, funnily enough, I was talking to Adrian a few hours ago. He's the recruiter I had mentioned uh, who's um, from, from Ireland and he's also been on the podcast before. So his huh. question is, would love to know what uh, he, meaning you, <laughs> would, would love to know what you think about the topic of predictive decisioning in candidate behavior, uh, yes or no to roles, based on email communication. So do you have any experience, rather than from just analyzing the resume, actually understanding if a person is going to be um, a good fit for the role based on how what, what they respond in their emails and how that exchange is going back and forth? I do not have experience building models that do that kind of thing. I am open to being wrong mm-hmm. and I'm sure that there are some I'm sure that there are some applications that would be perfectly valid. Mm-hmm. So for example, um if you were hiring for an executive assistant and somebody had a lot of spelling mistakes or un- unclear sentences, you could build models of course detecting spelling this is a trivial thing we've been doing it for decades. Um, and then even detecting kind of the quality of their writing, you could uh, assign like a reading level score or a, um, a, uh, an ease of reading score and these kinds of things for some kinds of roles for, I would say a limited range of roles, uh, would be, you know, meaningful, a meaningful predictor. Hmm. If you were trying to predict whether somebody was going to be a good software developer or data scientist from their email communications, I think things would start to break down. Mm-hmm. I I think that any kind of algorithm, and there are lots of people in the human resources sector, there are companies that have enormous valuations, which I won't mention by name, that have created tools that supposedly identify suitability of a candidate for roles. And I think it's absolute poppycock. Um, there are... Tons of tools out there, games that you can play or tools that analyze things you've written or the way you speak that try to predict how well you're going to fit in a role. And I think that there are there, there's there's two ways that this can be done. Um, one of those ways is by having uh, tests that are so conservative and so unbiased that they don't actually have any signal in them, and mm-hmm. then it's not going to be very useful. Mm-hmm. The other way you can go is you're asking for a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I think that those kinds of techniques, there's, you know, there's 
there's maybe there might be some middle road and maybe some people are hitting upon it on, in exactly the right way but I, I i think that there's i think that there's a lot of um snake oil out there i think that there might even be some stuff that isn't snake oil out there but it's overwhelmed by snake oil mm-hmm. uh, at this time and so i'm currently skeptical of a lot of these kinds of approaches mm. well what do you think of um predicting uh custom um candidate fit for a role based on video interviews that are analyzed by ai yeah um so i know that that is so we we talked about uh, ben taylor just before he was at higher view mm-hmm. uh as a chief data scientist for many years and higher view does that kind of thing um there i haven't personally used technology like that there might be some technology out there like higher views that uh does work well mm-hmm. uh but i'll bet you and there there's yeah there's definitely a lot of uh there have been academic investigations into a lot of these kinds of technologies and uh, many of them are not highly predictive mm-hmm. of the signal that you're looking for mm-hmm. gotcha. um so so yeah so i guess it's it's good to be skeptical uh it's good to if you're considering working with a particular vendor uh you know check what literature there is uh that you know they didn't publish um that other people have been able to validate about their techniques i'm sure that there is stuff out there particularly in so the more narrowly you define the problem mm-hmm. um so that example i gave earlier of you know ease of uh, ease of reading of somebody's writing example where you're hiring for a role where this person is going to be doing written communication, mm-hmm. that kind of, you narrowly define the problem and you have a data set that is, that, that you can tie very directly to that outcome. Sure. In other kinds of situations, the more broadly you try to make the algorithm uh, apply, the more edge cases that that algorithm will break down in. Interesting. Very, very valuable uh, insights. Uh, kind of like, also ties in with the whole that right now in the world what we have is and what is the most powerful thing is narrow ai rather than general ai so until we do have general ai use that to your advantage make your ai as narrow as possible in the context of the problem you're solving and you're going to have the best results yeah exactly and so i yeah people's yeah it's there's a huge there's a huge amount of opportunity still but you've got to look out for these edge cases and i think uh, AI companies, when a, a lot of them feel a lot of pressure mm-hmm. to be widely applicable before their technology is ready because their investors, their marketing mm. teams want that. And so I think it can end up being that then you have these algorithms that are overstretched. But I, yeah, I know, you know, any, any specific country, uh, company out there, I don't mean like there's, there, there, for all I know, every single AI company that's doing this kind of stuff in this space, everything that we've talked about, Mm-hmm. They their application may work perfectly, and it may work perfectly for a narrow range of applications. I don't want to sound like I'm being uniformly negative. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, it's fair. It's, it's fair to be yeah. uh, skeptical until you know, like, because if we're open arms to absolutely every new technology out there, we'll end up in a whole new kind of swamp where we don't know what's the truth. Yeah. Okay. Uh, speaking of Ben Taylor, he's got a very cool question for you. Um, Ask John if we're in a simulation. <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you believe we're in a simulation? Well, you should listen to uh, the last episode of my podcast, the Artificial Neural Network News Network. I love uh, that name. 
Yeah, uh, I'm glad that you. What, what's the short? Like, what's the short version of that name? A4N. A4N. Artificial News Network. Artificial Neural Network News Network. Crazy, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, we've only done uh, two episodes uh, so far. We just launched, but we're available, uh, you know, on all the places that you'd want to get a podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, and then we also. My intention was to publish everything on YouTube as well with video, so mm-hmm. that kind of like the Joe Rogan experience where you can see like that raw feed of, mm-hmm. you know, them not trying to make it about the video, but it's something that you have. Um, but then coronavirus hit and actually Ben Taylor was supposed to be uh, in person in New York uh, for filming that second episode and uh, the coronavirus hit and he couldn't make it. Um, uh, but we, we still did audio and I'm planning on doing that, um, you know, for as long as cor- cor- coronavirus is happening, I'll do it as, an audio only podcast like today's. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but yeah, actually on that. So if you listen to that episode, that episode two with Ben Taylor, uh, we actually definitively proved mm-hmm. that we're living in a simulation. Uh, Love it. Yep. You can, you can find that out for yourself. I will <laughs> check it out. I'll check it out. And, uh, yeah, man, uh, uh, maybe, you know, as we discussed before, I'd love to join you for an episode as well. Sounds like a fun show. going to be cool. Yeah, absolutely. I'm stoked at the prospect of it, Crow. Awesome. Okay, uh, and a bit a bit of a more serious question from Ben. Uh, what do you think the next version of deep learning is going to be? Oh, man. My first thought is that I don't even know what that question means. Hmm. Uh, well, think something like what's uh, Jeffrey Hinton just over a year ago. What are, what are they called? Capsule networks. You know, completely different. Still, Still kind of you know in in still maybe can be called in the same space i don't know enough about them no, deep yeah, learning or not but something new you know that type of thing it's still deep learning um castle networks definitely i i think maybe the question is and i'm open to your interpretation but i think maybe the question is like deep learning i mentioned earlier in 2012 that alex net coming in the picture and everybody taking notice of how powerful deep learning could be relative to other kinds of machine learning approaches for some kinds of problems, particularly where we're just trying to maximize accuracy. Um, and so it's made a huge splash, unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. And so maybe that's kind of what the question is, is what is going to make that next really big splash? Good point. Yeah, I, I, th- I would agree. I would agree. Like we've, we've seen recently uh, Capsule Networks, BERT, GANs. Uh, what's, what's next? What do you think next is coming next? Yeah, so I mean, so all of those things, um, Bird Capsule Network, Gantz, they are all, yeah, they are still deep learning, but they might fit this thing of, okay, well, they're going to be so world-changing that they'll become a field unto their own um, that rivals deep learning or is as, makes as big of a splash. The, the thing that all of those techniques that you mentioned have in common, and that is a hugely limiting factor that we've already touched on in today's show is that whether we're talking about transformer architectures like BERT, whether we're talking about GANs, whether we're talking about capsule networks, all three of those approaches are so computationally intensive that they are seldom used in practice. Mm -hmm. They are impractical in production systems. Mm -hmm. They're about as practical as using R. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh i hope hadley uh, i'm gonna send hadley this way hadley with this episode so you can have i it. i uh yeah i 
I I love art. Don't get me wrong. I, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I really am a big fan of Hadley's work too. Actually, we've uh, Hadley. If you do end up listening to this, uh, for years now, I've uh, seen you at a distance at conferences, and we've even smiled at each other. But I've been too nervous to talk to you. I was like, "What about I say <laughs> Oh my god, so romantic! Um, so you're such a romantic. <laughs> uh, the first time was at the joint statistical meetings in Chicago in 2016. Um, hmm. um, anyway, uh, so I don't. Uh, I it, so I think that maybe the answer lies in, in what we've been saying here, which is that I think the next deep learning might be some kind of learning approach, maybe even derived from deep learning, that requires much smaller data set sizes and much smaller compute. Mm. We have some early indications of this kind of thing happening. So um, academics have been coming up with narrow applications of technology that can do what they call one-shot learning. Mm. And so a lot of these techniques, they borrow inspiration from the way that uh, small children learn by imitation, where they can see somebody do something once and they can imitate it. And so um, particularly in the field of deep reinforcement learning, which I don't have time to go into much detail on right now, but it's a way of um, tackling a particular kind of a problem, you can build these algorithms that are able to imitate in a very small number of examples or maybe even one example. Whereas most deep learning models, particularly the more sophisticated you want them to be, you're requiring almost always at least thousands of cases and in the best models, millions of cases. So I think that that's going to be the next big thing and it's it's nowhere near. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's very cool. That's very cool. Um, yeah, we we kind of um, uh, we kind of have something also, which is quite popular. I would say uh, transfer learning, right? When when you have a pre-trained neural network, you just slice off the final layer, and then uh, put in your put apply, uh, put in your type of uh, problem there. How do you think that new application is going to be different to transfer learning? Yeah, so transfer learning is related in a sense because transfer learning allows us to take a model architecture that has been trained on a huge amount of data points. Um, and so we don't have to do all of that complex compute, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cloud compute to create that initial model. We just spend hundreds of dollars or maybe even tens of dollars <laughs> and retraining that model to our smaller data set of maybe thousands, or in some cases, even hundreds of examples. Mm -hmm. And so that helps in one respect. And I think that there's a huge amount that can be done there still in terms of um, being able to access models for transfer learning. So a lot of the popular deep learning libraries today, like TensorFlow and PyTorch, they allow us to access um, some pre-trained machine vision algorithms that are very powerful. Uh, however, there are yeah, there's there's still so much so much more way to go. If you go and look at the documentation, I know this for sure for TensorFlow, all of the machine vision models they have are trained on the same data set. They're all trained on the ImageNet data set. Hmm. And and so there's that that you know, we have so many people in the world tackling so many different kinds of problems, so much data being generated, and it's interesting that we're still seeing uh, you know, the it it isn't easy 
to do transfer learning today um, for a broad range of applications. And, and that's, that's something that'll change. But even as that improves and transfer learning becomes easier and easier, and there's a, that, that is absolutely going to happen, Kirill, you're exactly right. However, that doesn't help with our computational complexity problem. Okay. Um, because we'll still have these very uh, deep architectures. Uh, and then it also, that is still a very different thing. Transfer learning is still just using deep learning. We're just using deep learning more, you know, again, um, on a network that's already trained. Um, whereas this other kind of stuff is one-shot learning that can do stuff in a very small number of examples. It, it'll, it'll involve a completely, uh, it'll be a completely new way of, of training your model. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you for breaking that down. Makes total sense. Um, we've got a lot more questions. Well, no, like a few more questions on LinkedIn, but unfortunately we're running out of time, so we won't go through them. Uh, I just wanted to ask you one uh, final question, and that would be like, what's your, like if you've uh, worked in the industry, uh, like in uh, recruiting specifically, um, you and applying your knowledge here and, and in, other, in other applications of deep learning, you've, you've taught people, you've uh, written books. Out of all these interactions that you've had with people in the space, what would you say is your uh, best recommendation for somebody aspiring to become really good at deep learning? What would you say for them to go and and look for or, or do in order to become the best deep learning um, professional that they can possibly be? Perfect. I'm so glad you asked, Kirill. And this gets this gives me the opportunity to tie back to something that we were discussing earlier. So to be the best at anything, whether it's a data scientist or um, anything that you want to be, people have so much capacity to change and to do a huge amount of good for themselves and for the world. And uh, I would say that a very small proportion are 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 using even a small fraction of their potential. I think data scientists are an interesting audience because it's a fast moving field and it's pretty new. And so probably a lot of listeners, they're, um, they're already doing much better than average. But there's a huge amount of capacity for us all to be making a massive positive impact in the world. And it's kind of a cliche, but it starts with yourself. And if I'm going to recommend one resource, it is Cal Newport's book, Deep Work which is filled with recommendations for how and why you should be focused on one task at a time and that you should be have a clear idea of why you're focused on that task. And by living in this way, by being deeply focused on work for even just two hours a day, although he gives lots of ways that it could be potentially much, you know, it could be maybe five or six hours a day of deep work, you can produce a huge amount of novel ideas and share those with the world. Um, and that ties back to our thing earlier of why I haven't seen the LinkedIn post yet is um, I check all of my social media in a, in a calendar appointment once a week mm. <laughs> on my calendar. <laughs> um, so I'll get to that uh, shortly. Um, but uh, so it's it, a lot of that has to do. So it's like these blocking strategies of, you know, if you were imagining if you want to be uh, if you want to get better at running, then, you know, you might leave your phone at home when you go out for your run. You don't check your messages or take phone calls 
when you're out trying to become a better runner. And so it's, it's applying that same kind of philosophy to all aspects of your life, blocking off specific windows for particular things that are important to you and, and uh, just getting that done one thing at a time. Love it. Thank you so much. That is an amazing recommendation. Um, I'd love to talk more about productivity. Maybe we can do it on your show. Uh, I've got a lot of ideas there, but Deep Work has been on my uh, list of books that I need to get into. I've actually read the, I think the Blinkist version of it, like the shortened version, just to get the main insights, but I definitely need to get into that book. Heard a lot about it. I think that's a great way of living, actually. I wish I did that more often. Mm. It was just reading a summary, because I think that that... (laughs) That, you know, you can imagine how many more areas you could dabble into. If, if Yeah. I've yeah. been thinking that's a good idea. <laughs> oh, there we go. Exchange of ideas already. Um, yeah. But on that note, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your insights time. Had a fantastic chat. Before I let you go, uh, where are the places, the best places for our audience to find you and get in touch or follow your career podcast and so on? Oh, wonderful. Thank you for asking, Kirill. Well, I've tried to make it as easy as possible to follow all of the various things that I'm up to, whether it's my book, whether it's podcasting, whether it's three new videos that are coming out, whether it's uh, lectures like speaking at Super Data Science Conference um, or, uh, you know, online um, in other venues. I try to I, I one of the blocks of my time every week is making sure that all of that stuff is available and easy to access on my website. Uh, so just my name, johncrone.com. Um, and Let, let's spell that out. You have an unusual spelling of that. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so John, J-O-N, and then Crone is K-R-O-H-N. And um, yeah, so johncrone.com. And I actually have, there's only one thing that you need to do, which is sign up for the email newsletter that I have um, on that homepage. And whenever I make something new, um, I will uh, push a notification of, hey, look, there's free new videos out. Check them out. Um, and yeah, and then I'd love to stay in touch. You can From there, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn and um, you know, hear what kinds of content you'd love me to be creating or uh, just any kind of thoughts you have about data science. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, very cool. So check it out, johncrone.com. Uh, sign up there and follow or connect with John on LinkedIn. Yeah, John, once again, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Had a fantastic time and looking forward to seeing you at uh, our virtual event, Data Science Go, in end of June, maybe start of July. We're still planning out the dates. But yeah, see you there. And thanks so much for coming on the show today. Perfect, Kirill. It's been a ton of fun. I can't wait till the next time. So there you have it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did and got lots of valuable insights from our conversation with John. I know for sure that I got lots of takeaways and it's actually really hard to pick what my favorite takeaway was. I've been sitting here scratching my head, looking at my notes and deciding what was my favorite part. There's so much valuable information. I probably would pick, if I had to pick just one, I probably would pick that whole very simple but powerful concept of how they check for bias in models at Untapped, uh, and simply by having a data set that uh, a verification data set where you have, for instance, a mix of genders or a mix of backgrounds of people, 
and uh, see if your model is actually going to pick up, is that your, your model is going to output results with bias in them. If it's going to prefer a certain gender or a certain race, and by having such a simple fail-safe mechanism, companies can save themselves a lot of headache and just verify that the models are performing accurately. I thought that something I hadn't thought of before, but it really is a very powerful uh, idea of doing it that way. So that was our episode with John Crone. If you'd like to learn more about John or follow any of his work, you can definitely find him on LinkedIn. Also, uh, his website, John Crone, J-O-N-K-R-O-H-N.com. Uh, there you can find all the resources, materials that John produces and publishes. And of course, make sure to have a look at our very first virtual conference. Uh, you can sign up and get your ticket already today. Uh, you can find it at www.datasciencego.com. That's datasciencego.com. And uh, John is going to be uh, running a presentation there as well. So you might want to be part of that. And as always, you can get the show notes and all of the materials mentioned on this episode at superdaysense.com slash 365. That's superdaysense.com slash 365, where you'll get the transcript for this episode, any materials, links, and URLs to John's uh, LinkedIn and so on. So make sure to check that out as well. On that note, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time today. And if you enjoyed this episode and our chat with John, then we'll see you at Data Sense Go Virtual. And until next time, happy analyzing.